0: morning. My name is Jared Clary. I'm one of the pastors here over discipleship and missions, and it's a joy for me to be with you guys in delivering this message. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and uh, we're not going to finish 2 Samuel today. We have left a snippet. We're just dragging this on. Y'all are like, when are we going to be done? One more week. One more week, right? We're dragging it on, but Tracy will be back, and he will close up the book, um, and it will be a great celebration of the, the wisdom which we've learned from David but we've, let me just remind you where we're at. First and Second Samuel, combined books, and, and we're seeing this picture of God's promised king, who will rule and reign for all of eternity forever, who will be the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? That this is God's great promise. And so we're spending the rest of our Old Testament looking for who's the son of David? Who's the son of David? Who's going to meet all of these requirements? And so we get to our section here in 2 Samuel 23, and we're at David's, we're in his his latter life. We're towards the end of his days. And and I think what we see here in 2 Samuel, and in, in what I want you to get, is that there's a great warning in this passage for us. That sometimes as we read the Bible, then there are commands for us to obey. Sometimes there's promises for us to cling to, and we've seen both of those in Samuel. But the text today is a great warning. It's a big flashing beacon that says you don't have to walk this path. This, this is destructive if you go down this path. And so my encouragement for us is that we would heed this warning, that we wouldn't have to live by experience, the school of hard knocks, but that we would heed the warning which God has given to us in his word and that we might, we might veer and stay on the straight path, that we might not be enticed down these other paths, which promise many things but deliver only bitterness and pain. So let's pray that the Lord would do that for us this morning. God, as we come to your word, we're desperately dependent on you to speak to us. Lord, that your spirit would move in a powerful way of convicting our heart, of opening our eyes and our ears to see and to hear. Lord, that we would obey you, that we would believe, that you would transform our mind, that you would renew our heart, God, and that we might walk in obedience and faithfulness to you, displaying to a world so desperately in need of hope that you are the true hope. Lord, we pray that you would do it this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2 Samuel 23, we're going to start in verse 8, and this is a section where it's known as deity's mighty men, but I call it an impressive posse. All right, so this is David's impressive posse. He's in his later part of life and he's looking back and he's seeing all of these mighty men who have surrounded him, who have fought for him. And here's what we hear. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashoheth, right? You guys all got that, right? You know how to pronounce that, right? These are the passages you ask in community group, can somebody read that? And they've read ahead and they're like, like, no one reads these things, right? So he's a Takamanite, and he was the chief of the three, okay? And so we see this distinction that there were three guys which really stand out, and so this is the first of the three. We hear a little bit of his resume. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And we're like, wow, it's pretty impressive. Verse 9, And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of D- Dudu. Careful look at you, <laughs> the son of ah- Ahohai, and he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew, okay, so we see this picture that Israel's afraid, they're running, they withdrew, and he, Eliezer, rose, and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword, or it, it cramped around the sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herahite, And the Philistines gathered together at Lili, and where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he, Shema, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. These are just the top three. Now, these are incredible men. I got the privilege of uh, doing my brother's wedding about a year ago. And my brother's two years older than me, and uh, he's a Green Beret Special Forces, does crazy things, and doesn't talk about any of it, right? And so I get to do this wedding. And I'm at this wedding, and I'm not like a little guy. I'm not easily intimidated, but... All of a sudden, I'm in this room, and I very quickly recognize that I am the least capable person in the room. Like I'm surrounded by this posse of incredibly impressive guys who have stories like this. These are the people that it's like I want them all in my phone because if something goes down, I'm calling them. Right? Like) I don't know if you guys think like that, but I've thought like that. And, and this is what David's got here. He's got this posse of guys, and these are just three of them. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about the things that some of these guys have done, that, that David was in battle, and he just pops off, and he's like, man, I could really use a drink from the well of Bethlehem. And all the guys are like, yeah, that's the Philistine stronghold. But three of them are like, let's go get him a drink. Like, these are the type of people that their brain works a little differently than the rest of us, right? And so these three guys, like, just for their king, they sneak in, and they get a drink of water, and they bring it back to David. And they're like, hey, here's your drink from the well in Bethlehem. And David's like, what? You guys did that for me? And he's like, I can't drink this. You guys were willing to risk your life for me to have a drink of water? And he offers that to the Lord. He doesn't drink it. He offers it to the Lord, and he's like, man, you got a guy in here who jumps in a pit with a lion, right, to, like, kill this lion? Like, these are incredibly impressive guys. And this is who has surrounded David. In his later life, he's looking at all of these guys that that have surrounded him, and it's the best and the bravest in all of Israel and Judah. And they're willing to fight for him. They're willing to go to extreme lengths for him and his cause. And I think what the author is doing here is he's giving us just a little bit of a setup as to why David is going to respond in sin in this next chapter. Of of what would cause David to become sort of relaxed, self-reliant, self-exalting and i think it's because when he looked around and he sees all these guys he's like man this impressive posse who could who could stand against me but the writer gives us just a little glimpse look back at verse 10 it says he talking about eliezer he rose and he struck down the philistines until his hand was weary we can just get a little picture that as mighty as he was and as brave as he was, he still got weary. And his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. You see, the victory of this mighty man was not based off of Eliezer's abilities, but it was based off of the fact that the Lord gave the victory. Look at verse 12. But he, talking about Shema, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it. And he struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. You see, it wasn't Shema, it was the Lord. And so we see in this setup that David's got these mighty men, and they've got this fame because of the actions in which they did. But we know that behind those actions was the Lord providing. It was the Lord fighting for them. It was the Lord sustaining them. It was the Lord that gave the victory. And so then we get to chapter 24, verse 1, and we're going to see that pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before destruction. We see 24 verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, now this has many theological landmines right here, and so we need to navigate this carefully. Let me just address verse one here, and then we'll go on with our story. So there's several things there. The first is we see again. So this is not the first time that the Lord has been angry, but again the Lord is angry. And who's he angry with? He's angry with Israel. We don't know specifically, What the cause of this was, but we could assume that this is partly because of the rebellion of Absalom and Israel with Absalom, and we could also assume that this is partially because of the rebellion of Sheba. And so these are two previous, as we looked in 2 Samuel, we've already talked about these. These are two rebellions of the people of Israel against God's anointed, okay? And so in rebelling against God's leader, they have in essence rebelled against God. And so God is angered at the rebellion of Israel. And so he's, he's angered by that. Now you may be thinking like, well, I don't know that it's right for God to get angry. Well, let's just take an aside a minute that, that anger is not always bad. There are things in the scripture which we should be angered with and that God is angered with, namely sin. That God is angered with sin. And that's right, and just, and holy, that for him not to be angered with rebellion would mean that it was okay, and that's not the fact, that God is angry with Israel because of the rebellion against him, and so we we see that, but then there's another landmine. It says, and he, being God, incited David against them. That that there is an instigating or a provoking almost which can be read into that. Now, we get a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 to this same occurrence. And the writer of Chronicles tells us that Satan provoked David against Israel. That we've got these, so is this a contradiction in the Bible in which we go, yeah, well, contradictions, we can't believe that. Well, no, I think there's a better way for us. To understand this that, that both of these are true. That God, in his sovereignty, and this is where it gets deep, stick with me. God, in his sovereignty, is outside of time and knows all things, he's omniscient and all knowing. And so, he knows that David has within his heart a desire for the things which he's going to do, that within him lies these seeds of pride self-reliance, self-exaltation. And so there is an aspect in which the Lord no longer with, with strains or withholds David from his own desires, but there's also an aspect in this that Satan comes alongside those things and he fans those flames, those lies to us in order that we might believe them, that sin really won't cost us, that there's nothing really wrong with self-reliance and self-exaltation and pride, that, that we won't get caught, that Satan comes along and provokes those things. You see, Genesis, in the heart of Adam and Eve, there was a, a seed of doubt and distrust that God's ways were really best. And what did Satan do? He came alongside those seeds which were in the heart of Adam and Eve, and he fanned them right? In order that they might act on the thought that they had. And so we see in this that that the Lord is using David's own fleshly desires in his sovereignty to accomplish God's purposes. Now you're like, wow, you just took a leap there. How do you get there? Well, God is going to use David to judge Israel, Remember, it's Israel that God is angered at. He's going to use David, and David is going to walk according to his own desires and flesh, and and then God is going to discipline David and Israel at the same time. This is how God works. In all of his sovereignty, he's going to weave the discipline of Israel, or the judgment of Israel for their disobedience, and a discipline of David in him choosing to sin. Now, we know from the scripture that God never makes us sin, that we as humans are fully culpable or responsible, bearing the full weight of our own decisions for our sin. So God never makes us sin. We can never stand and say, well, God made me do it when we're talking about sin. It is always according to our own desires in which we act. And so we see in this that, that there's a, a sovereignty of God that is being woven together, which may offend you. If you're interacting with this in a, in a new way, then, then it may step on your toes. Let me just encourage you to continue the conversation. Let's continue to have the conversation. Come up after the service talk to us, send us an email. We would love nothing more than to work through this. This is a, a big mind-blowing concept, but God in his sovereignty uses David's own desires to accomplish something which is going to be much greater and is going to lead to David's goodness, all right? And let's continue our, our section here. We're seeing that pride goes before destruction, Okay, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. So what is, what is David incited to do? He's incited to take a census. He's incited to take a census. Go and number Israel and Judah. Now, when you think of the sins of David, this is not often the sin that you're like, oh yeah, David was a sinner. He numbered the people, Right? He took a census. That's not what you typically think. But yet, we're going to see that this sin stacks up at the same level as all of other D- David's other sins. But here's the thing. This sin can lay so dormant for times. And it's so deceptive in our own lives. Right? He numbers Israel and Judah. And you go, well, why do you know that that was a sin? Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him... Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of people. David just wants to know the number of people in his rule and reign and kingdom. Verse three. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab's trying to talk David down. He's trying to say, this is the the voice of wisdom coming to David and saying, David, this isn't good. Why do you want to do this thing, David? Like the Lord can multiply your kingdom and give you a thousand more. Why Why do you want to know? And so we see that there's this undercurrent. We don't know explicitly, but David wasn't supposed to number the people, and we see that there's something to David's desire to know the number of his people, that that it will give him something, self-exaltation, self-reliance, pride, that there's something there that Joab's talking him down from. Verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. So so they try to talk him out of it, and he says, no, I'm the king, do what I say, go take the census. So this next section talks about from the very top to the very bottom. They go, they cross the Jordan, they travel all the way around. It takes them nine months and 20 days to take this census. They've traveled all over David's kingdom. Nine months and 20 days. Now just think about that a minute. You make a decision, which is sin. And you get nine months and 20 days to think about it. Right? And he comes back, and Joab gives the sum of the numbering of the people of the king. And here's what he says. In Israel, there's 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, we get a little hint in this that David has taken the census just of the men who are of fighting age. He's looking at what does my military might look like. And he's got 800,000 men in Israel, and he's got 500,000 men in Judah. And so we see here that, that David has taken this census, not of all the people, but of the fighting men. Now, we see censuses taken in the Old Testament. Exodus, God tells Moses specifically how to take a census and that people were supposed to pay a census tax. It doesn't seem like this text is saying because David didn't require a tax, this is why God's judging him. It seems that in this text, it's all based off of David's heart motivations. It's all based off of David's desires. And again, we're going to get to this and see, but we're building this of all of these reasons. His military leaders try to convince him otherwise. He only numbers the fighting men. Verse 10. This is the section where we're going to get to see that discipline awakens us to repentance and righteousness. Discipline awakens us to repentance and righteousness. Nine months, 20 days, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. He made the decision. It's carried out. Nine months, 20 days. He gets the report back, and isn't this what sin is like? David, you're going to feel so good after you know how many people you got. You're going to be like, yeah, check that out. And what does it deliver? What does sin always deliver? Bitterness. David's heart struck him that he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. That David knew, and it's that moment of clarity that for us all too often we wait until after the sin for that moment of clarity. When yet God has been merciful and gracious to us many times, he sent Joab, said, don't do this, David. David's like, oh no, I'm doing it. And it's the same for us. The Holy Spirit prompts you and says, don't do that, Jared, don't do that. And I go, oh no, I'm doing it. And that moment of clarity comes and I go, I sinned, I've done foolishly. And what does David immediately turn to? He immediately turns to the Lord and says, now, Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, the sin. But, but I don't believe that David has actually been moved to repentance yet. I think in this, we almost see this moment of like, oh, I got caught. And it's the moment of clarity where you're, you're more upset that you got caught than the fact that you really sinned than the fact that you offended a holy God. And and David says, remove this iniquity from me. Verse 11, and when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came from the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, so this is God's word coming to David. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. I don't know if you guys use this in parenting, but this is a great parenting tip. Kid sins and you go, all right, What do you think the consequence should be? And they're like, I don't know. It's like, well, let's think about something. Oftentimes they'll give you something way better than what you were going to do, right? Like, but here's what, here's what happens. David comes to the Lord, says, remove this iniquity. The Lord then responds to David and says, okay, well, here's what is going to happen. I've got consequences. You get to pick. Pick one of these three. Number one, shall three years of famine come to you in your land. Three years of famine. Number two, or shall there be three months of you fleeing from your foes while they pursue you? Or number three, shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Okay, so so let's talk about this for just a minute. That That in this we see that David's sin was his self-reliance on the number of people that he had in his army. And so what is the Lord's consequence in disciplining David's sin? It's going to attack the pride and self-reliance that David has in his army. How? Well, he's going to send a famine. What's going to happen in a famine? Well, there's no food. So what do the people of Israel have to do? They will have to ask and seek refuge and help from those outside of themselves. That, that it will war against their pride that we are self-sufficient in and of ourselves. Look at my army. And yet they'll have to go outside of themselves. They'll have to depend on the mercy of God to, to bring rain to those around them. And they'll have to ask of those around them, that they won't be self-sufficient. Three years of famine. Or you can flee three months from your foes while they pursue you. I think this one just directly wars against David's counting his army. Hey, David, okay, as a consequence, you've got pride and self-reliance, self-exaltation on this army that you believe you formed in and of yourself. So I'm gonna put you on the run that this army won't be able to protect you. Three months, you'll be on the run. Three months, you'll be reminded of your need for the Lord. It wars against the pride which was laying dormant in David's heart. Or three months or three days of pestilence in your land. What is pestilence? Plague. Three days of plague. This was going to be very clearly seen as as a judgment from God that you're numbering the people and God's going to bring about a plague that's going to wipe out some of the people. So how does David respond? Verse 14, David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. David's response is that even though he knows he's being disciplined, he knows that the Lord is merciful. That even when David has sinned against the Lord, he knows that the Lord is his best hope. That even when David has rebelled and, and accepted all of the fame of his success in and of himself, that he's looked at all of the protection in which he has and a great military might, and he's claimed that for himself, and he's relying on that, that he knows, I messed up, and I gotta go back to Dad. I've got to go back to the Lord. I've got to go back to the Father, for he is merciful. But look at how he describes his mercy. His mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David puts himself into the hands of the Lord. Verse 15, we get to see this discipline then meted out. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died from the people of Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. You see, David knew that the Lord was merciful. And in this account, we see the Lord's mercy. That the Lord brought about the discipline of David in the pestilence. 70,000 people died. This is part of the weaving of the judgment on Israel and in the discipline of David. That there's 70,000 people that died, but the way this is written, we see that the Lord stops. That he looks at the destruction which is about to come to Jerusalem, and the Lord says, enough. He stops. Why does he stop? Because his mercy is great. He stops because his mercy is great. He is not a vengeful God that is just up there trying to mete out destruction and violence. His mercy is great. He stops, and we see then David's response. Verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please do not let your hand be against me and against my father's house. That he sees the discipline and the destruction which his sin and the sin of Israel has brought, and he says, Behold, I have sinned. That he repents that there is a full confession to what he has done, that he has sinned, that he has done wickedly. And then he pleads on behalf of those that he leads that the Lord would be gracious to them. But these sheep, they have done nothing. Now, this isn't absolving Israel from their own sin, but this is David as the leader leading his people, going on behalf of his people, petitioning the Lord to be merciful, that God would act according to his will. There's a great warning for us. But there's a warning for us as individuals, and then there's a warning for us corporately. That the discipline of the Lord is meant to lead us to repentance and righteousness. But before we get to that step, we can also recognize that that if we walk according to his ways, then, then we don't need that. And so we've got this warning to not do that, but then we've also got this warning that when we do sin, to turn to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this, and it's a great encouragement for us. Out of the book of from Solomon, we hear this quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It goes on then to say this, that, that, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. That there's a warning and there's an encouragement for us that when we find ourselves in sin, then, then we need to repent and come back to the great mercy of God. That we would be trained by that righteousness. That we would long after the things of the Lord. So corporately, what does this look like? Well, I was just thinking through it as a church. This church, Norse Ferry Community Church, started with eight people in a living room. Some of you were here. Not very many of you, I don't think, because there were only eight, right? But it started with eight people in the living room. And, and I think if you compare this kind of like with David, then when David went to fight Goliath, he, he couldn't rely on his own strength. The circumstances made it impossible, and when there's eight people sitting in a living room saying, we want to be a church planting church. We want to be a church that multiplies to make other churches and encourage other churches and revive other churches and, and send the gospel to the ends of the earth. When you're eight people sitting in the living room, the circumstances of that seem impossible. There's only one way. You've got to trust in God. You've got to believe that he's the one who will fight the battle for you. And so that church then moved to a a market over there. And then it moved from there to the nursing home. And there were therapy cats. If you're a visitor with us today, then just be glad we don't have therapy cats still. Some of y'all are cat people. That's okay. We'll forgive you. But again, you're meeting in a nursing home. The circumstances prevent you from taking pride in yourself. Yep, look at our building. Yeah, look at our budget. And you grow and you grow and you see God's faithfulness and, and then all of a sudden the circumstances because of God's faithfulness because of God's goodness and favor to you they begin to stack up and you begin to look and say like man we got a sweet building thankfully we're, we're in great financial shape we built this building without debt we've got money in the bank how much money let's number our money And we begin to think, like, look at what we've got. We can rely on this stuff. Look at how many members we have. We can really make an impact now. And we begin to forget that it was the Lord who gave victory. And there's a great warning right there. The success of Norris Ferry Community Church will not be based off of our building or our budget, but it will be based off of the fact that we depend on the Lord. And it's His victory. And it's his fighting for us that will continue to make us successful. But what does that look like individually for you? I think there's a reason that this comes at the end of David's life. That when you've worked really hard and you've trusted the Lord and you've been through the times where it stretched you and your marriage and and then you get to a place where you can kind of sit back. And the scripture even says that the Lord gave David rest from his enemies. And it's in that rest that I want to warn you. There are seeds of pride and self-reliance and self-exaltation which are just waiting to sprout. And it's our job to continue to be diligent and fight those. To repent and come back to the mercy of our God. Let's pray. Lord, it's only by your grace. It's only by your great work that this church is what it is, has the impact that it does. Lord, and we, we just pray, God, would you protect us from being prideful or self-reliant? self-exalting stealing your glory and your credit for what you've built but God would you do the same in our lives individually Lord that as we look at our lives that we wouldn't steal your glory of what you've done the opportunity for us to testify to the world look at our God and how good he is look at what he's done through unworthy vessels. Lord, would you help us to fight the pride and self-reliance that lies in our heart? And God, when it does sneak up, Lord, would you make us quick to repent, to throw ourselves back at the feet of our God who is merciful, who provided the way for us to repent of our sin, to own it, confess it, Come back to you because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We ask it all in His name, Jesus' name.